I'm the doctor. So you're the famous Sam. You're listening to Pieces of Eight, the Doctor Who podcast that likes to see eye to eye with its listeners. Eye to eye with its listeners? We- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sort of. Okay. Yeah, it works. It makes it. Kind of. It is. It is. we're back to look at those sections of the doctor who universe that feature the incarnation of the time lord as played by paul mcgann i'm rebecca chapman and i'm kenny smith and you join us as we continue our quest to feature the eighth doctor's exploits in books and well that's it and for this season really it's all about the books again we do love our books our fifth series is all about the eda novels which were published by bbc books in the 1990s and today we're examining book 12, Seeing Eye by Jonathan Blum and Kate Allman. This is probably the most Scottish sounding book of them all, if you think about it. Seeing Eye. Also, did you know that Scottish people are the only people who can make a double positive into a negative? Eh? Yeah, this is true. <laughs> you know, if you, if, you, if you know, like a double negative becomes a positive. Yeah, yeah. But if you, in Scottish, if you say something... There's actually a particular phrase you can use where a double positive becomes a negative. Okay, what is this phrase? I write. <laughs> For example, you could say, um, I'm a millionaire in disguise, to which I would reply, I write. <laughs> so there you go. Scottish so it, it's, more, it's, it's, a, it's a sarcastic tone. Very much so. But we can make a p- double positive into negative. So that's why the Scottish people are renowned for their wit the world over. <laughs> <laughs> So there we go. Yes, it's uh, back to book 12. And before we go any further, would you mind telling us what the back cover blurb has to say about Seeing Eye? Published on the 8th of June, 1998. Now that's interesting. That's um, 24 years to the day after Tom Baker became the Doctor, when John Perch regenerated into him. And it was 11 days before my 24th birthday. Aww. I was talking to my partner last night and we've decided that we're going to do a rewatch of Classic Who as well when we finish New Who. Because he's only seen a few of them and he's very excited. Interesting. That sounds fun. It does. But yes, I will do the back cover blurb. I'm very sorry, I got distracted. Activate voice mode. (laughs) He has no idea why Samantha Jones ran away from him. Sam is homeless on the streets of the colony world of Heartland trying to face what's just happened between her and the Doctor. He's searching for her and for answers. While she struggles to survive in a strange city centuries from home, the Doctor comes across evidence of alien involvement in the local mega-corporation, INC, and is soon confined to a prison that becomes a hell of his own making. Where did INC's mysterious eye implants really come from? What is the company searching for in the desert? What is hiding in the shadows watching their progress? Faced with these mysteries, separated by half the world, Sam and the Doctor each face a battle. Sam to rebuild her life, the Doctor to stay sane. And if they find each other again, what will be left of either of them? Oh, that was very good. I enjoyed that. That was almost seductive. But there we go. (laughs) Now, let's begin our look at Seeing Eyes, starting with Steve Cole, the range editor of the BBC Books. We love Steve. We do. Hi, I'm Steve Cole. I was range editor for BBC Books' Doctor Who list back in the late 90s. Tell us a bit about Seeing Eye and how it came to be. Seeing Eye was, yeah, it's like the um, 
almost like a new jumping on point to uh, start again. I suppose it was, I felt that Sam wasn't really working. Uh, the writers weren't enjoying writing for her. She was a bit too young. It didn't really quite suit the dynamic. We wanted her to be a little bit older and, um, and just a bit more experienced to give her a, make it more, you know, a more meaningful role in the books perhaps and to get over the kind of like the, the crush thing. It's interesting how that crush thing prefigures a lot of the uh, modern series Doctor Who stuff in terms of companions crushing all over the Doctor. But I knew that, you know, I wanted John and Kate to take Sam on this journey. They'd written her really well, I think, in Vampire Science, and I felt that they'd really tried hard with the character and wanted to see um, how they would do. Plus, you get the, the lovely idea of the Doctor locked up in prison, and actually he doesn't escape <laughs> five minutes later with a buzz of the sonic screwdriver. Um, so it was a, it was a nice... Uh, upending of convention and obviously having him stuck there all that time while Sam gets older is uh, again a really lovely concept uh, and a dramatic one while Sam just goes through her uh, her salad days and uh, and obviously um, there's an exciting alien plot going on as well so yeah I was very happy with seeing I I think it, it came out very well-rounded well-turned-out novel um, it aged Sam effectively and effectively set us up for a new run of adventures which would uh, take the range forward to the taint. We, of course, also have the fact that Sam has a relationship with a girl in here, which at the time was a bit, wow, didn't expect that. <laughs> yes, well, you know, it's always been you know, a very inclusive uh, place, both uh, Doctor Who and the, uh, the fandom it inspires. So, uh, yeah, it was lovely to be able to do stuff like that and not, you know, limit stuff in any way you know, there was no censorship coming down from on high uh, about anything we were, it was just pretty much left our own devices so it was nice to just be able to kind of do what we wanted as long as i didn't include any sort of like you know graphic sex or swearing anything was anything went really because there was you know i was really the only pair of eyes watching over it by that point by that point the bosses had really stopped wanting doctor who on their department's bottom line so they were you know, trying to shuffle it off onto other other people. Uh, so although I was nominally working out of the children's department, the children's department had disowned us, and we went into the sports motoring and entertainment group, SMEG, because that was <laughs> because that was where Red Dwarf sat, and Red Dwarf was the only other science fiction uh, the BBC uh, had any commercial exploitation of. So I thought, ah, oh, Doctor Who, Red Dwarf is the same thing. It's all space. Uh, and shoved us in there, which is probably a better home for it than when it eventually moved to factual uh, titles at the BBC, which was, uh, that was an interesting day. <laughs> oh, I look forward to hearing more about that. One other thing about seeing eyes, the fact that the Doctor, his, his will not to be broken when he keeps on trying to escape it over and over again, I think that is, and then of course he just he finally gets to the breaking point. I think it's very interesting insight into the Doctor's mentality and psyche. Yes, and of course, Kate Orman had form in torturing the Doctor in, in that way. Uh, I think she was really good at getting right inside his skin and, uh, and pricking it with needles uh, to see what happened. So yeah, I loved those scenes. It, was, it felt really fresh and original and also really quite upsetting. The Doctor's going through this while Sam is finding herself, you know, <laughs> <laughs> on an alien world and you know that you know they'll get together in the end but you are starting to wonder what state 
<laughs> state that the main characters will be in by the time they meet because you know will they be just sort of like strangers and slightly estranged or or doctors uh yeah although he asserts uh, his character we put him through a lot of stuff in the books in a good way and a bad way <laughs> <laughs> thanks to steve again he's definitely made more pieces and pieces of faith now than gary russell or ian atkins or even michael from doctor Who magazine and they've Matt all Michael been on a Doctor lot. Magazine. Yeah, Matt Michael from Doctor Magazine. They've all been on a lot. They have. They have been on a lot. But that's because they're worthy <laughs> guests and worthy of having back, not because they're there to fill a schedule far from it. They're actually there because they've interesting, positive things to see. Which is lovely. And I really like that we have all of these guests. The fact they keep coming back is good. It's like having a party and having another one, and they always want to come back. So, yeah. Yeah, it's nice. As ever, when we cover a novel, we've created some new readings from the book for you to hear. And today, it is read by our favourite Belgian, Tina Peters. I am so excited about this. Yeah, I love Tina's voice. Yes, the doctor exclaimed as a record unscrolled in his eye. Yes, there she was, Samantha Endline Jones. Employee number this, R-A-I-N that. Employment terminated in advance of contract closure one week ago. Vacated her apartment, no forwarding address. The doctor could have thrown the computer across the room. Instead, he backed out of the staff record, carefully closing the gateways behind him so that there was no trace of an unauthorized access. He tidied up a few of the messes he'd made, quieted down the distractions. Everything would be back to normal for INC's corporate sheep in an hour or so. He was about to disconnect and walked out when something went entirely wrong. And it was though as he was looking down a tunnel, down some corridor that stretched away into the distance until it diminished to a point, and something was rushing down that hallway towards him, coming closer, faster and faster, and for some reason he wasn't going to be able to take off the eyepiece and disconnect before it reached him, because time was stretching out for him, but getting shorter and shorter for whatever it was that was racing towards him, targeting him, had him in its sights, and his hands were coming up to the eyepiece to tear it away, but he couldn't possibly react quickly enough and it was looming in his vision, and it was right here. 15 exabytes of static punched the doctor in the left eye, hard enough to send him flying back from the data tablet. The chair striking the wall of the cubicle and spilling onto the floor. The eyepiece fluttered away. He tried to rise, but the inside of his head was like an empty cathedral the moment after the bell stopped ringing. He fell back on the corporate green carpet, trying to remember how to breathe. Malihi spotted him almost immediately and decided he didn't want to know. He went to get Suwabi that coffee instead. The security people got there two minutes late. Well, anyway, I think it is time to head to Australia and hear from co-writer Jonathan Blum. Hello, I'm Jonathan Blum, and I wrote about half of Seeing Eye with my wife Kate Orman. Did you write the first half or the second half or the bits in between? Well, that's a good question, really. I mean, part of the fun of going back and rereading the book was trying to figure out who did which bits. I mean, usually when I look back, I have a pretty good idea, but there are a bunch of stretches in this book where I'm really not sure who did what. That is I a mean, good thing, then. That's a husband and yeah. wife in sync. Yeah, we were uh, we were really on the same page in this book. I mean, even more than the usual. I mean, probably it's because, I mean, at heart, I'm a, I'm a massive Kate Orman fanboy, and I was consciously trying to write with her approach in mind there. I mean, also though, I think that in some bits we were actually like putting lines into each other's scenes. I mean, I would 
write a partial draft, a detailed scene breakdown, and doing bits, but not quite stitch it all together, and pass it to her and say, here, you have a go at this. So, I mean, I mean, looking back, it's like you'd, I'd be reading through these chapters, and I'd see a detail and think, okay, this has to be Kate. Then it'd be followed by a line and going, oh, that's definitely me. I mean, there are, there are, that's not the whole book that way, though, because, I mean, there were parts where we were working more separately. I mean, if you want, I can go through and sort of sum up who wrote sort of which sections of this thing for the most part. Always interested like, in these bits of trivia. Okay, I mean, I'm just give me a second here. I've got to go through some notes that I took while I was looking back through the book here. I mean, uh, first chapter, it, it's a real mishmash, like I described. It's got both our fingerprints all over it there. Uh, I think it would have been just bits and pieces of us taking turns. I seem to recall that at first Kate was uh, still finishing up some work on Walking to Babylon, so I think there's probably a bit more of me uh, in the very beginning bit. Uh, chapter two, uh, the stuff with the data oomphs, that, that's all me. I mean, the whole idea of these of oomphs is these little annoying creatures that pester you is sort of an old Orman family gag from when they were kids, but I'm the one who made them into AIs and stuck them in the book. Uh, rest of the chapter two, I think I did a detailed outline, like down to parts of scenes there, uh, but then left it for Kate to write it, though I, I had done a few bits of the prose in there. I mean, like the, the doctor's big rant at the receptionist towards the end. I mean, well, if there's a big rant in our books, it's usually me. And there was another line that jumped out as being mine in the midst of it, which was the receptionist going, Sir, if you don't get down from there, I'm going to have to call for a customer liaison squad. Yeah, that, that, that sounds like me. Um, uh... Chapters 3 and 4, they're also mishmashes. I think 3 is probably more me because, in general, in general, I was doing the Sam bits while Kate was doing the uh, Doctor ones. I mean, once the Doctor gets sent to prison, the next stretch of chapters there, that was very firmly split. I was doing the stuff with Sam growing up in the real world. Kate was doing the stuff with the, the Doctor in prison. Um, uh, and uh, then uh, when we got together... Uh, Kate did Sam's actual big rescue of the Doctor because she's better at that kind of action sequence, but I did the uh, TARDIS bits before and after. Uh, then the next bit, um, breaking into the uh, INC base, that was mostly me, but once the eye turns up, it's more Kate, and I was just doing little bits. Uh, the, the final chapter, the aftermath, that's pretty much all me. I mean, that's, in a way, that sort of sums up our, our writing a lot of the time. Kate does the really exciting action-y bits, whereas I'm doing all the character stuff around the margins. <laughs> I guess that about sums it up. See, I like that kind of thing. That's always interesting to know who did what. So would the commission for this one, did it come about pretty quickly after delivering Vampire Science? Uh, yeah, the way that I recall it was that, I mean, shortly after we'd uh, handed in Vamp Science, he was happy with it, uh, Steve sent out a document to a number of authors who he was proposing the idea that he wanted to do a series of books where in which the Doctor and Sam got split up and... Uh, they would be separated for a while, and then in the last book of the series, uh, the Doctor would find Sam again. Uh, she would be now about 21 years old or so. She'd aged up a little bit and had more experience, and then we'd reunite them and reintroduce them as a new character. Uh, we heard that, and we thought that, no, what, what's actually interesting here is the story in between, covering those years in between there. So we pitched the idea that the Doctor is looking for Sam and uh, gets bunged in prison basically and uh, we get to see her growing up and going from the uh, sort of student activist to an actual grown-up who could do stuff for real really uh, while the doctor is uh, in effect just still dealing with some science fiction stuff but mainly stuck in a prison he can't escape from this whole idea that she is moving forward in her life while he is basically stuck then it was a matter of stringing a plot together around that idea there but he liked the idea and we ended up building that whole uh, storyline around that it's a, it's a fascinating one, given that um, the way things have been broken up and 
obviously Paul Leonard had the, them nearly reunited at the end of Dreamstone Moon before the torch passed on to yourself. So did you have any communication with Paul? Yeah, we had a fair bit of back and forth there early on. I mean, swapping the outlines and later on drafts of the manuscripts. Uh, we didn't ever talk directly with Michael Collier, though. Um, Steve passed on the outline. We had a couple of notes through him, but we never heard from him directly. I mean, I don't think we ever learned until after Steve had left that Michael Collier actually was Steve Cole. Well, not Uh-oh. strictly true, Jonathan, because he is actually a real person, but he just uh, borrowed his name. And we've actually spoken oh, with him. <laughs> so there is a real Michael Collier. I always thought the name was just a, a Collier was just a pun on on coal. <laughs> well, so, so did uh, we. We thought that over here, and uh, no, it's not. It's absolutely true, and that's how they, they met because alphabetically they met at uni and they were put in the same dorms, and and <laughs> there you go. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! <laughs> we got to introduce Michael Collier to Paula Moore. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, that was that was Steve. Um, I remember we had decided early on, though, that, I mean, Legacy had already been pitched before any of this. I mean, they bought the outline for that at the same time they bought War of the Daleks. So I remember we discussed early on, and I think it was my suggestion, but I'm not sure, that we wouldn't we wouldn't make Paul do too much work to tie... Or we wouldn't make John do too much work to tie his stuff into the other three books. We decided early on Sam wouldn't actually have to turn up in his book. Uh, wouldn't have to dogling to Earth. We'd just have her go straight to well, where Dreamstone Moon would need her to be. Uh, and he'd just be able to go go to Earth in search of Sam, get sidetracked, and get involved in his own adventure as he'd written before. Uh, then I remember, though, we did work very closely with Paul to try to... We sort of went back and forth at the outline stage to make sure that we could pick up from where he left her and why, and I mean, making sure that we connected his evil corporation and the other evil corporation in Longest Day with our own uh, semi-evil corporation. I do remember also, I mentioned to all of them early on, the idea of the cat, which was, uh, I don't think I ever told anyone that at the time, except for Kate, that my idea was that it was my little contribution to the gods of Gallifrey uh, mythos. I just told them that there'd be this mysterious cat that would just sort of appear and, uh, be there for the at the doc, for the doctor and for Sam at various times in the uh, the incident, and we just have it there just in the background until the cat would eventually bring them together towards the end in our book. Fantastic. So, given that this is a book where a lot happens to Sam, but really not a lot happens to the doctor, and in, in, if you know what I mean, I don't mean that in a rude way. The fact that he's just trying to escape again and again, and it's just the fact that he's unbreakable. And just really pushed to the limits. And I think Kate did an amazing job there. Oh, thank you. I, I will make sure that I tell her that. I mean, because she was, she was actually kind of worried about the prison bits after we did our first read-through. I mean, back in those days, we did, um, our, we did a full weekend-long read-through with all our friends where we just sat down together and read the book out loud cover to cover, which is a great way of uh, finding any bits that are boring or overwritten. And unfortunately, uh, well, as, as Kate put it later on, she thinks she had... In that first draft, she'd brought across the fundamental boringness of prison life a little too well. It sort of went on for quite a length, and I mean, as my my friend Marcia Twitty, who played uh, General Kramer in Time Rift, character who later turned up in Vapsai and beyond, uh, she basically talked to me and said, it took me three cups of coffee and three cans of Coke to get through Chapter 7. So, I mean, literally, we were going ahead and looking at chapters... At, the later chapters and literally cutting out scenes before they read them just because we knew it was way too much but Kate did a wonderful job honing the thing down and getting it in in shape and it, I think the end results really are 
genuinely really well written. I mean, when I look back on the book as a whole, I mean, the main thing that comes across to me is this sense of literary ambition. I mean, we were both determined not to make this just like a novelization of an unmade episode. We were writing a book that was not just a Doctor Who novel. It was really trying to be a book about what Doctor Who means. I mean, all that stuff, especially in the prison, but also on the Sam side of things, is about the Doctor as this image of unsuppressible change. But also, in the case of the prison side of stuff, what it would take to stop that force in its track. I mean, I think a lot of stuff does happen in the prison sections, but not in the obvious way. I mean, it's like like the Doctor, you're waiting for the next big plot twist. But what's actually happening is that while, I mean, while the Doctor, as you say, yeah, I mean, he doesn't break, but he's getting more and more bent, and twisted. He's getting more obsessive and going off the rails. And in the end, I mean, he sort of has to literally face that it's, in a way, it's him doing it to himself. And it also, I mean, that he's doing damage to the other people around him because in the absence of an outside threat, that sort of his sort of disruptive energy gets sort of turned inwards and it's still leaking out onto anyone who's standing nearby. Remember, we, we talked through a lot of this sort of stuff, but I just really liked her execution of all that. Yeah, she does it quite well, this torturing the Doctor thing, having done it a few times in New Adventures. But of course, you did a rather good job with Samsville. And of course, shock horror, you gave a Doctor Who companion a same-sex relationship. Shock, horror, but in fandom. Because I think there was just not a, what, outraged reaction. I think because Doctor Who fandom is pretty inclusive and always has been. It was a, it was a signal, it's happened, that's it. The way it should be. Yeah, well, uh, that was literally a case of uh, slipping it past the editor. I mean, the story with uh, Sam's girlfriend there, I mean, in the first draft, um, there's a line in the final version where she refers to it as a three years and three relationships in terms of how long she's been away from the doctor and originally that was uh, three years and a couple of boyfriends and a couple of girlfriends but uh, Steve actually called us on that and said that's probably a little too much there so he had us take that line out there but we had already quietly established that um, uh, his, that the the uh, partner in the middle there between her two boyfriends there was named Chris and we'd previously established at one point early on we just had a line about that's Chris with her power drill of doom over there so literally, I think we just got we just got that in without a comment from from Steve. I mean, I don't know for sure. He might have just been turning a blind eye and letting that go through. But I really do think we actually just slipped that past the editor on that one. I mean, I can understand where Steve was coming from on this. There, I mean, they had been given the directive when they got the books back from Virgin. They told us all they had to sort of rein in a little bit the edgier content that was being dealt with. But, I mean, Kate and I always very much wanted to keep Virgin's attitude going as best we could. So we were always slipping in little references of some sort around the margins whenever we could. I mean, like the mention of her having a little cartoon Mo badge featuring the character Mo from Dykes to Watch Out For by Alison Bechdel. I mean, that was straight from uh, me and my friends in college and so forth. We were huge fans of Alison's stuff at the time, as I recall. So we, we still tried to slip things in as best we could, and the whole thing with Chris was an example of that there. I mean, looking back on the books from all these years later, I was worried when I reread it that this stuff would look really coy and sort of like, well, we're not quite saying this here. But I mean, with hindsight now, it just looks sort of naturally low-key. So I'm very glad that, that sort of worked out. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. So where did the influence of the eye come from? What, what um, was part of your thinking when you came up with that? I, um, where did we get the eye from? I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, I remember us talking about the idea that, I mean, if you had a group mind, uh, somehow it would probably be incredibly inefficient because, I mean, 
you'd basically be thinking by committee. You'd have a lot of back chat, and it wouldn't be great for innovation any more than it is any time you get a bunch of other people together in some sort of bureaucracy there. I mean, without that kind of structure, you'd have just the potential for a whole lot of just uselessness there. I remember, I mean, I also remember talking with Kate early on about what it would be like to have a really alien alien intelligence, like the way that an octopus is intelligent in a fundamentally different way from humans. There are some parts of the brain which are specialized things which it's more skilled at than we ever are, but other areas which it's just not nearly as sharp as us. But, I mean, if it could recognize that, and if these aliens couldn't innovate, they could be able to use us to do its innovation for it. I mean... Also, come to think of it, I think some of my experiences of the corporate world might have played into that as well there, too, certainly when it came to the group think and so forth. And I, I remember also a big influence was our experience in online news groups of the day, where there's plenty of group think and back and forth and it bickering and pointless feuding. And I, I remember realizing that if the contents of the Internet ever became sentient, it would be the most useless superintelligence ever. But I think that played more to Ixnet, which was much more about that. Um, when it comes to like the really creepy and weird details of the eyes, though, and their stolen ship, those sort of things, I have no idea. I suspect a lot of that might have been down to Kate, and so you can thank her for that there, but I really don't know where some of that stuff came from. Fab. And of course we get a wee return for the, the Volkswagen as well, which was a, a lovely wee touch. Ah, the bug. I mean, I loved that. I mean, I, I think that came from in the uh, rewritten first chapter of Bempsai. I, we, we needed the Doctor to have a car because of the action that was happening in there. But we wanted something that wasn't an obvious, cool action sequence car. And my parents had one when I was a child, but that, was, that one wasn't... I mean, I mean, yeah, that was green. I mean, I made it maroon, not because of the real bug that we had, but because I, as a kid, I remember having a toy VW, which is maroon. So I, I guess that's the original bug. Also, I mean, I think it's, it's famously, it's a great car for tinkering with and customizing because they were designed that you could do most of the maintenance yourself. So, of course, the Doctor would have a field day with that. I mean, the whole sort of model train set sort of thing that we were setting up with the Doctor as mad tinkerer. Figured we'd build on that. We could use it in a few places in seeing eye just, um, I remember we tried to fix the little continuity error where someone referred to uh, the boot of the VW, and, of course, those were rear engines, so I... I think we slipped in a little line where we see both ends open and we can't see the engine in either one. God knows what the doctor's done in customizing this thing. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I just loved throwing in little details like that that were whimsical, but specifically for his character. And I was thrilled that the other authors picked up on the bug and used it a little bit. And I mean, then after all that, it was, it was still an absolute delight to totally trash the bug in Unnatural History, force the doctor to write it off because then you knew things were getting serious. And it later, of course, made an appearance in one of the Big Finish audios. What? I mean, goodness, I didn't know that. Where is it? It's in Dark Eyes 2, I think it is. It features in there. It's uh, with the Eighth Doctor. So. Good God. I mean, the bud lives. I mean, that's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's just like Bumblebee. You can never get rid of them. They're, it's a classic. Yeah. It's an absolute classic. Yeah, I mean, also, also, I think part of it was that we I mean, we thought this would fit in with the whole console room for the TV movie, which we just loved that huge kind of space it created. I could just see the bug just sort of parked in there in the corner, being fixed with it, and um, uh, I can just everyone just sort of looking at it and just not thinking about how it gets through those doors. <laughs> it was just like the motorcycle, really, in the TV movie, because it's when yeah. the ladders probably would have got knocked off. 
based on the Glasgow police boxes, at least. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, let's um, chat a wee bit more about Sam again. Um, how did you find coming back to her the second time? Did you find that you'd sort of, having done her before, that the, you had that voice in the head, which helped? Yeah, I think it was it was almost continuous going straight from vamp side to seeing eye for us. I mean, Kate had been doing walking for Babylon, walking to Babylon in between, uh, but there was still finishing up work on vamp side, and then I went almost straight on to seeing eye, as I recall. But so, but we were also aware of uh, wanting to make Sam a bit more sophisticated, even at the beginning of the book, because we figured after a year, I mean, Sam would already have grown up a bit there. I mean, even even within vamp side, we were constantly showing her learning and changing even from the beginning of the book to the end. I mean, the first book, I mean, she starts out very confident, then reality gives her a huge knock partway through, and she basically has to uh, prove herself to herself and uh, come out stronger for it there. Seeing uh, Eye was this, that same sort of journey structure, but read a lot larger. I mean, we hit her with the big knock on page one, and it becomes about her pulling herself out of the hole and uh, then getting to the point where she can do things she never did before. I mean... In a way, I mean, I think it's it's very much like the journey that I went through in college, where even just a few short years, you can look back on yourself and realize that that you'd made a lot of mistakes, but you're not making the same mistakes as before. You're still able to make new and different mistakes, I guess. But I mean, at the time that I wrote the book, I was 25, I think. So that whole period of growth was still very fresh in my mind. I mean, I didn't use any of my own learning experiences directly. But the, just the general sense of learning how to do things right, I guess. So it was able to draw straight on that into a, having Sam's voice grow up from being this teenager to someone who is actually a functioning adult in her own right, I guess. Yeah, yeah definitely feel it. You definitely feel that maturity growing. And something else I noticed, of course, was the there's a, a nice subtle reference back to Sleepy with the fact that we get the AI doctor, all in capitals, sort of tying oh, yes. in quite nicely. So that must have been quite fun just to sneak in, just to sort of say it is all part of the same thing, really. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that part of it is that for Kate especially, a lot of this stuff was more or less continuous. I mean, it wasn't a big callback to refer back to Sleepy. I mean, she'd also just done uh, So Vile a Sin, uh, taking that over from uh, Ben Arnovich, uh, which had the AIs, including uh, Florence in it. And we refer to Florence in them uh, seeing eye as well. I mean, she was literally doing that at the same time that we were doing Vampsai, and then we had Walking to Babylon in between, so it wasn't like there was this sharp break in our head between the Virgin years and the BBC years. I mean, we were, it was all sort of rolling around in there together. It was all part of the, I guess if you want to call it the Ormondverse, and I was quite happy to just revisit that in this tier as well. I mean, I think that we were also quite consciously still continuing the whole Virgin approach. I mean, this is part of the, very much part of the same series for us. But like I said, I mean, with Seeing Eye, even more than with Vamp Psy, I had that sense that we were writing a novel with the whole sort of too broad and too deep for the small screen kind of approach. And I mean, I'm really glad that Steve supported us on this and bought into an outline which was less cliffhangery and more about growth and the gradual change over time there. Uh, so I'm very grateful to that and to Kate for doing so much hard work on this as well. I'm very happy with how that turned out, but it's a lot of it is down to them. Definitely. I'm, I'm just going to, before we finish up, I'm just going to give you a, a quick quote from the book I Who. Having almost exhausted the options for torturing the Doctor, Blum and Norman top themselves, turning the Who formula of imprisonment and brutality on its ear as the 1,000-plus-year-old Doctor goes near mad in a prison where people treat him nice. 
Seeing Eye is an elegant and beautiful examination of how much the Doctor and Sam are acclimated to and a part of the violence they fought against, reducing the imprisoned Doctor to the level of a mere nuisance and then building him up again. The loneliness the Doctor and Sam feel for each other certainly fleshes out her character like no other book so far and actually, and I hate to say this, is very, very rare proof that she's an ideal companion for the Time Lord. Overall, Seeing Eye shows Rare Vision, one of the best Who novels you're likely to read, with a lack of action, but not a lack of story. So how do you react to that? Wow. I, I mean, it, it's wonderful to hear someone someone say something that's like, that's pretty much exactly what you hoped for that the, the book would be. I mean, that you that you communicated something to them, which is exactly what you hoped you could express. I mean, that that's one of the best feelings in the world. Thank you for quoting that at me. But, uh, I mean, one of the things that just came back hearing that, though, is that, I mean, another influence on the prison stuff was, of course, The Prisoner. And, I mean, I hadn't even dreamed that I'd be writing a prisoner book at this point here, but that was definitely in my mental mix because I was a huge fan of that. I mean, I remember we sort of consciously took the idea of the happy, nice prison that's masking a dark secret, but we thought, I mean, what if what if it's a happy, nice prison, but the niceness goes all the way down to the bone, and they're not actually doing anything evil to you, it's just that you can't leave. I mean, that, that would still drive number six crazy eight bonkers right there, and especially the doctor, too. And, I mean, that really the the deep dark secret of this prison and the company is that they don't actually know what's going on. There's still a threat but it's from a world outside them and they're just oblivious to it and that's what's holding them where they are. I mean I think I also picked up on the idea that what was most holding the doctor in prison was himself, I mean his own nature. I mean we made that literal in the case of uh, Doctor, the AI, and literally a part of himself that wants to understand him and will keep him where he is until he gets that kind of breakthrough. I mean, that the whole book is really referring back to, from the title down, to that whole idea of understanding yourself, knowing yourself completely, and generally trying to shape yourself based on what you know. I mean, that's what Sam finally manages the whole thing. She holds on to her sense of self when she's being faced with the whole Ubernet uh, pushing against her there. And, I mean, at the end, even with the Doctor, I mean, he has to actually consciously recognize how his time in the prison has changed him. I mean, he has to not just react instinctively at the end when he's getting claustrophobic. He has to understand, he has to control himself, and he has to, he has to have that grip on who and what he is and, where he, and knowing where he's coming from. Yeah. And actually, that reminds me, uh, there's one more little anecdote about that bit there, which is that I remember that we realized at the last possible minute there, I mean, literally at the end of the of the book, process of the book there, um, I was looking back through it after we'd already sent in our final corrections of the proofs and we, had, we were just about to have the book published, I suddenly realized that there was a bit in that scene that I just described that was missing. I mean, we'd written the scene with the Doctor getting trapped in the walls of the ship there and freaking out. And then we'd written the scene uh, where, as he was emerging finally, he got it under control. But we hadn't really sold the moment where he comes back from the brink and pulls himself, pulls himself together, gets that grip on himself, and understands what he's doing. Uh, so I mean, I literally remember looking at that, talking with Kate, then writing a few more paragraphs to put in there, and then literally phoning up Steve at the last possible minute. And reading to him these couple of paragraphs over the phone that we could yeah, get him to just type in there. I mean, I literally had to read even the, down to the punctuation marks. Read that to him so that he could get that into the uh, manuscript at the last second. And I think it really did help it to sell that one little detail. It sort of meant it, meant it all to me because now I could look back and say, okay, I remember looking this moment here, looking at it and thinking, okay, yes, this book is finally done and it is right. And that's a great feeling. That's what I call leaving it to the last minute. <laughs>
but brilliant john thank you so much as always my pleasure absolutely thanks so much thanks to john for his time in chatting to peace of the faith and we'll hopefully hear from him again soon so kenny how was this book received back in the day very very well this was a very positive book because i think the pair of them had established with vampire science that they were a duo to look out for Kate had, of course, done several new adventures and was very much a fan favourite. And, um, yeah, this one has is, is got the lot because it's got the Doctor pretty much being pushed to the edge to see how far they can take him before he breaks, or will he, under um, under exerted pressure when he's been captured and there's no way out. And can they break as well? Of course they can't, but they nearly do. But there's also just the, the horrible stuff with the eye implants as well and just think, ooh... I don't think, uh, I think, I mean, that said, I would have had laser eye surgery if I could have to fix my crappy vision, but unfortunately my eyes have astigmatism as they're shaped like rugby balls rather than football, so unfortunately it cannot be done. Grr. But uh, yeah, it's a great book. It's exciting. Uh, Sam is really, really engaging. And the fact that uh, she gets to have a relationship with another girl, which is, again, as we sort of hinted at last episode, it was radical at the time, but I just don't remember anybody being that fussed about it. It was a bit of a, oh, didn't see that coming. But it's, I think because Doctor fandom, as Steve Cole said earlier, has always been very open and accepting. So I just don't remember it being that big a deal, which is the, probably the way it should be. But the fact was, this is the one of the earliest occasions I can remember. I can't remember if the New Adventures had... I think there was hints that Bernice might have had a girlfriend at one point. But generally... It was very well received. And I, I will quote to you from I Who, the unauthorised guide to Doctor Who novels. At the end of the day, having almost exhausted the options of torturing the Doctor, Blum and Norman top themselves, turning the Who formula of imprisonment and brutality on its ear as the 1,000-year-old-plus Doctor goes near mad in a prison where people treat him nice. Seeing Eye is an elegant and beautiful examination of how much the Doctor and Sam are acclimated to and a part of the violence they fought against, reducing the imprisoned doctor to the level of a mere nuisance and then building him up again. The loneliness the doctor and Sam feel for each other certainly fleshes out her character like no other book so far. And actually, and I hate to say this, is very, very rare proof that she's an ideal companion for the Time Lord. Overall, Seeing Eye shows Rare Vision, one of the best two novels you're likely to read, with a lack of action, and not a lack of story. So yes, it's very much a cerebral read and enjoyable for that. Very interesting. I'll have to give it a go. Yeah, definitely. And also, they have uh, the eye in this book were picked up on for an audio from BBV called Eye Scream, written by Lance Parkin. And I think that was released in 2000s. I think it was a sequel sort of things. I haven't heard it since its time of release, but I remember it was... It was entertaining and uh, lots of good characters and it's a great concept. Good. Before we go, do we have time for a final extract from the book? Of course we do. And is it once again read by Tinovitas, our favourite Belgian? It most certainly is read by our favourite Belgian. <laughs> I wonder if Tin would like to send us some chocolate because we keep saying she's our favourite Belgian. Oh, Belgian. don't. Belgian chocolate's the best. I haven't been able to go in years now. Oh, I know you still. <laughs> what about um, Belgian beers? No, you can't have them just now. So no, can't have enough. them at the moment. Bel- yeah, can't have them at the moment. The Belgian beers are my favourite. I used to love Timmermans fruit beers. 
used to get them in a pub in Glasgow, the Cask and Steel with the Glasgow Doctor Group on a Saturday, and I had the piss taken out of me for liking what they all, because I like the peach one especially, and my friends would call it my beach beers, not peach beers, but beach with, as in sand. And that is terrible. I know there's a, um, there's, there, there is a peach beer in Belgium, I can't remember what it's called, and it, it's commonly referred to as a woman's beer. Which, which is terrible, but it's really good beer. Okay, well, I'll have to try it then. <laughs> you should. Anyway, back to the extract. <laughs> Looks like the fire's nearly out, said Orin. We're running out of distraction. We're still on plan, said Sam. The doctor was talking so quickly it was almost a blur. He pressed the phone to his head tightly, as though trying to push his thoughts through it, hunched over on the bed. Right. Now pull the lever to your right down two notches. Yes? Now the blue switches. See them? On the other end of the line, Paul was barely getting a word in edgewise. That's it, said the doctor. Punch the red button and pray. He snapped the phone shut. The TARDIS will home in on me, he told Sam. Not much time. They're watching us right now. Damn, said Orin. We're going to have to go for plan B. The catapult, said Paul's voice. Orin popped his head out into the corridor. We'll have to leave him. Don't even think about it, said Sam. Sam, Sam, said the doctor. He reached under the blankets on the bed. This is for you. He handed her a dilapidated one-eyed teddy bear. And then she laughed. And in the next moment, the TARDIS tortured clockwork whir filled the air. The door opened automatically as they ran up to the TARDIS. It had parked itself in the corridor outside, utterly incongruous. Clear! Sam was shouting into her microphone. You're clear! Go, go, go! Somewhere a guard shouted. They didn't stop to look, just bolted into the vessel, feeling those heavy doors close safely behind them. The doctor almost fell down the stairs. He shouted, a hand coming up to his left eye. Get us out of here! Sam shouted at Paul. She and Matatan grabbed the doctor. Oh yeah? How do I do that? The TARDIS let out a dignified sound, like a steam engine, and the central column began a smashing rise and fall. Paul stared at the blue light of the interlocking parts. Sam pulled the doctor's hands off his face. A violent shudder ran through him. His eyes were tightly closed and under the lid of the left eye something was moving. You're safe, she murmured, as another jolt shook his frame. We've got you out. Everything is going to be fine. His head gave a tiny shake. He opened his eyes and the left one was filled with bloody tears. And thanks again to Tina for the reading. Remember, if you've enjoyed today's Pieces of Eight, or indeed liked any episode we've done, please do leave a review for us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts, as it means more people can find our episodes and it's always appreciated. It certainly is. And we'll be back tomorrow with another BBC book. And this time, it's the award-winning writer Gary Russell to tell us about Placebo Effect. And until then, I've been Kenny Smith. And I was Rebecca Chapman. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.